Hello once again, listener, and I'm delighted to welcome you to another episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology Podcast in conversation with. I'm Hugh Thomas, the Deputy Editor. In today's episode, we are discussing a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase 2 trial on the safety and efficacy of benralizumab in patients with eosinophilic gastritis. I am delighted to have the corresponding author on the paper, Professor Mark Rothenberg, joining me today to talk about the study. He is Director of Allergy and Immunology at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, Professor at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, the Founder and Director of the Cincinnati Center for Xenophilic Disorders, the Founder and Director of the NIH's Consortium of Xenophilic Gastrointestinal Disease Researchers, and the incumbent of the Budding Chair of Allergy and Immunology. Professor Rothenberg, thank you very much for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this um, question and answer period. Wonderful. So we're obviously here today to talk about this new trial that you were involved in, looking at uh, benralizumab in eosinophilic gastritis. I just thought you could start off a little bit by introducing what is eosinophilic gastritis, how a patient's experiencing the disease, and how does it relate to this broader family of eosinophilic gastrointestinal diseases, some of which our, our readers and listeners might be a bit more familiar with? Sure. Eosinophilic gastritis is part of the spectrum of eosinophilic gastrointestinal diseases. It is um, considered to be the second in terms of the prevalence, with EOE being the most common. The agents in general are thought to be, and there's strong evidence emerging, antigen-induced, primarily food-induced, idiopathic diseases that are caused by the overactivation of type 2 immune system. Idiopathic in the sense that we know it's driven by antigen, but we pretty much rule out any known causes for the eosinophilia in the gastrointestinal tract. So we diagnose this disease by looking at endoscopic biopsies. Important that it can only be diagnosed by a pathologist counting the eosinophils, which is the current gold standard. Eosinophils are markedly elevated, and we use a particular threshold, which is 30 eosinophils per high power field in five fields of the stomach to diagnose this disease. This disease is, is what you call rare, but not uncommon. So we're looking at about a disease that's about one-tenth as prevalent as eosinophilic esophagitis, which may be more well um, recognized to some of the listeners. EOE is about 1 in 2,000 people, where this disease would be more than 1 in 10,000, maybe 1 in 20,000 individuals. Certainly a, a low prevalence of a disease for a single site. And this was, um, you know, it took a lot of effort to get this study done, which involved 26 patients that were randomized, and uh, half were subjected to placebo and half were subjected to the drug. But we'll, I'm sure we'll get more into the details of the actual uh, protocol in a moment. Absolutely. We certainly will. Um, I mean, you touched on it there, the drug versus placebo comparison. The drug itself, benralizumab, how does that drug work? And what was the rationale for testing that drug in, uh, in azinophytic gastritis? Benralizumab is a newly approved drug that's really quite amazing for researchers and like myself, clinician investigators, but also for patients because it involves a long-standing scientific uh, inquiry into mechanisms that control eosinophils. Ultimately, work that I was involved with and, and helped perpetuate since the original discovery, but it's the fact that IL-5 is an eosinophil growth factor. And the IL-5 receptor, accordingly, is relatively specific for human eosinophils. The particular drug that we're using in this study is FDA-approved, 
it's an eosinophil depleting antibody because it binds to the alpha receptor and has been engineered so that it mediates with high efficiency antibody dependent cellular cytotoxicity, allowing the immune system itself to deplete eosinophils very effectively and in a very safe manner. It's currently approved for eosinophilic asthma and it's being studied for other indications. So having the availability of this drug that's, that's considered to be quite safe allowed us to test a fundamental concept for this particular disease, eosinophil gastritis, is even though the disease is named for the eosinophil levels, the role of the eosinophil in this disease has still not been proven. This drug, benalizumab, provided a, a very important opportunity to test that hypothesis that eosinophils are actually causal in this disease. And now onto the trial itself, which I'm sure you've been dying to tell us all about. Um, what were those key design features and how did you make those design choices? We designed the study so it would be placebo controlled. It's considered to be a phase two trial. We were randomizing the patients one to one with the drug at an established dose of 30 milligrams subcutaneously given every four weeks. This is a dose that's known to deplete eosinophils quite effectively in the blood and in the lung and in other tissues, although not tested in the gastrointestinal tract, particularly for gastritis. We decided to use three doses of the drug. So following screening period, patients underwent monthly infusions, monthly uh, treatment with the drug or the placebo, and following those three injections at week 12, the patients underwent an endoscopy. Then eosinophils were enumerated along with a bunch of other parameters. Levels of eosinophils in the gastric tissue were the primary outcome. So a reduction was considered to be the primary outcome of the study. I'd like to add to you that not only did we conduct this double-blind 12-week study, which we consider to be phase um, the phase one of the study, or phase A to be more clear, but we conducted two open-label extension periods. They went out for up to 88 weeks in many of the patients who were given open-label active drug at Q4 weeks or up to Q8 weeks, depending upon different clinical circumstances. So this study is very, I think, strong in the sense that would have a real testing of the drug against the placebo using a reasonable period of time, 12 weeks, but then testing the possibility that the drug will have sustained activity or any activity, which is what we'll discuss in after a quite a long period of time, which is the 88 weeks. Fantastic. Uh, you've set the scene pretty nicely there for then talking about the main results. Can you take us through those? Yes. So the primary endpoint was uh, dramatically achieved. There was a great reduction, very statistically significant, in the primary outcome, which was the level of eosinophils before and after the, the drug compared to the placebo. You can see if you read the paper that the levels went to zero in many of the patients, in both the stomach and the blood. Some patients didn't have retained levels, and there was one placebo patient that did respond, um, which is another story which we describe in the paper. But the point is the drug worked very effectively at achieving the primary endpoint. Now, the real reason this study was done was not because we didn't think the drug would work in terms of lowering eosinophils, but we wanted to find out what would happen when we used a series of uh, in-depth analyses for the disease on both the cellular, molecular, biomarker, and clinical level. And what we found out across the board, and we can talk about individual outcomes, was that this drug 
had really no effect or anything except lowering the eosinophils and the associated histology. But it didn't change any other features of the histology. It didn't change the endoscopic features. It didn't change the clinical symptoms, although there was a trend in the open label for improvement in pain, but it wasn't considered to be substantial enough. And interestingly, we used a panel of molecular transcript um, analyses on the stomach, which was actually 48 genes. So we have an objective measurement of many aspects related to the, to the molecular pathogenesis of the disease. And we found across the board that there was not even any changes in any of these pathways except for two genes. And those two genes were the eosinophil-specific genes, CLC and CCR3, proving that the method works, proving no eosinophil depletion, but showing pretty much across the board that there wasn't anything else happening. That was very surprising, certainly to me, and it really is a, it is a paradigm-shifting data set because it really does change the way we think about this disease. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's quite remarkable how specific that effect is on these xenophils and just how robustly the, the effects outside of that seem very minimal, if at all, existent. Where do you think then these findings leave us in terms of how we understand the mechanisms underlying xenophilic uh, gastritis and perhaps xenophilic gastrointestinal diseases more generally? Well, these findings really shift attention away from eosinophils as a causal mediator of the disease. And it really raises the question of what is the actual cellular molecular basis of the disease? We, we do know now that the upper aegid eosinophilic esophagitis is clearly mediated in large part by type 2 cytokine signaling, particularly IL-4 and IL-13, the latter being more important, because we know that the first FDA-approved drug uh, called Dupilumab is very effective in this disease. So that does substantiate that an upstream pathway to an eosinophil is actually the type 2 immune response, particularly mediated by the signaling of these cytokines. Whether or not there is any single cell that's contributing, like a mast cell, is, is called... Um, is, is, is basically an outstanding question, and it's going to be important to address that. These studies also raise the question of whether or not eosinophil levels should be used for diagnostic purposes, but also in terms of monitoring the patients, because it is the gold standard for both of those currently. Uh, I mean, one point leading off from that, were there any signals that you identified in your current data set, in that trial data set, that might indicate uh, potential biomarkers for monitoring patients, or, or is that a question for another study? I would say that the biomarkers that we found were the ones that, that, that are sustained, that showed no effect by the drug. They're very dramatic, and they were embedded into our molecular panel, for example, which is uh, type 2 cytokine pathway. The mast cells that are... Um, you know, present and, and unabated by this drug, and um, and markers of of, um, of innate immunity and other cytokine pathways that are dysregulated in this in the in the gastric uh, tissue. Sure, and and so, what future studies do you think then might be warranted to investigate these mechanisms and and, and really get down to what might be underpinning uh, xenophilic gastritis? Well, there's a number of studies actually that are ongoing. And we happen to be um, leading one of them, one of them, which is the testing of dupilumab for eosinophil gastritis. This is being conducted by the Consortium of Eosinophil Gastrointestinal Research, or SEGER, 
in collaboration with the drug company um, that makes the, the, the drug, um, Regenera and Sanofi. And uh, the study is, um, is nearing completion. So we're very much looking forward to this now. A phase two, but a multi-site study analyzing um, and testing the efficacy of, of an anti-type 2 cytokine therapeutic um, on this disease. There's certainly uh, interest in, in other drugs that would also target this pathway, particularly R13 itself, rather than the shared receptor, which is the target of dupilumab, and also studying uh, drugs that interfere with other cytokines that we think is upstream, such as TSLP, um, which now we know is, is very important um, in humans for mediating other type 2 diseases, such as asthma, it's now a recently approved drug, anti-TSLP, and also an interest in and long-term treatment uh, of, of these drugs, but also considering the possibility that there may be some phenotypes and endotypes of this disease that do show different patternings. But our study, which was really only 26 patients, may be too small to address that possibility, you. Wonderful. Uh, we look forward to that wealth of research in the future. I think it's, it's for me, it's a really fascinating blend of mechanisms and clinical uh, clinical studies. Um, really getting down to kind of experimental work. So, Professor Rothenberg, thank you once again for taking the time to tour us through the paper. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Hope your readers uh, benefit from this article, and I thank you and your staff, this esteemed journal, for your interest in our work. You can read the article on the trial of benvenizumab in cynophilic gastritis online now at thelancer.com. Thank you to Professor Rothenberg. And thank you for listening to this latest episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology Podcast in conversation with. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With wherever you usually get your podcasts.